The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. There's a tense scene at the end of uh, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, that classic uh, novel set in 1930s Alabama, where the noble defense lawyer Atticus Finch is closing his case with an impassioned plea to the jury. Quote, a court is only as sound as its jury, and a jury is only as sound as the men who make it up. I am confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence you have heard, come to a decision, and restore this defendant to his family. In the name of God, do your duty. After deliberating, the jury comes back. Guilty. 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 Unanimously declaring this man that everyone knows full well is innocent. Guilty. As Atticus Finch remarks afterward, the one place where a man ought to get a square deal is in a courtroom. Be he any color of the rainbow, but people have a way of carrying their resentments right into the jury box. From classic novels to 24-hour news coverage of famous trials, from documentaries to true crime podcasts, our culture is obsessed with questions of legality. But even more specifically, we're obsessed with the concept of justice, of people getting what is their due. We hate to see the, the wicked get off for their crimes. We hate to see the innocent condemned, the innocent get punished for something they never did. And that's because there's something deep about justice, something our consciences, our very natures cry out for, something we see in tragic proportions in our passage today. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We've journeyed with Jesus through his three years of public ministry. 
Uh, We've seen him teaching the masses, healing the sick, driving out demons, even raising the dead. In short, doing good, nothing but good everywhere he goes. But all of that's over because right now he's in chains. Just as he predicted, he's been betrayed, arrested, abandoned, and as we'll see this morning, he's being brought to trial before the powers that be. Here's what I think is the main idea of Mark 14, 53 to 65. Uh, The main idea of this passage, and therefore, I hope, the main idea of this message. Jesus came in humility as a priest, but he will return in glory as a judge. Jesus came in humility as a priest, but he will return in glory as a judge. We'll think about that as we step through this scene in two points. First, justice scorned. We'll see that in verses 53 to 59. And second, Jesus condemned, verses 60 to 65. Justice scorned and Jesus condemned. First, justice scorned, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Don't picture a courthouse on a sunny afternoon with news reporters. No, it's probably like 1 a.m. They're operating under the cover of night. We're meant to feel the sleaziness and the stealth of what's going on. So he's finally arraigned before the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling council in Jewish life, which means the conspiracy among his enemies to end him once and for all has reached a fever pitch. Now, the next verse is, uh, is pointing beyond itself to something we're going to see next week. It, verse 54 almost functions as a parenthesis. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest There, he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Even though we're going to be thinking more about Peter next week when we examine the next scene, I do want us for now to just notice where Peter is following, or more specifically, how. What does it say there in verse 54? Peter followed him at a distance not closely, not willing to publicly associate with Jesus when things get tough. Do you see? The distance foreshadows the denial. Denying the Lord, brothers and sisters, and this isn't just a theoretical concept. Some of you may have friends or family members who once professed faith. I do. It's a heartbreaking thing when when someone when someone walks away from Jesus Christ. But here's what we got to understand. Denying the Lord is not something that just kind of suddenly happens overnight. No, it's something that eventually happens when you've been content to keep a safe following distance from the king of love. Stay close to him, beloved. Stick with him, even when it's difficult, especially when it's difficult. And in order to do that, in order for any of us to do that, we're going to have to have others walking beside us, reminding us of his glory and his character and his promises and refusing to let us lag behind. This is 
really what church membership is in a nutshell. This is what it's all about. (laughs) Helping each other stay close to Jesus. And to the degree, if you just kind of think logically about it, to the degree we're close to him, we'll be close to one another, huddled around him. But to the degree you kind of pull back into the high priest's courtyard to warm yourself by the fire so, so that you can be close enough to kind of see the action, but also careful enough to hedge your bets, to have an exit plan if need be. To the degree that's the posture of your heart, you will just simply not make it in the Christian life. And you will be a means of hindering rather than helping others stay close to the king. This is also a warning for those of you who are nominal Christians in name only. Beware of assuring yourself that you're close enough to Jesus. Beware of assuring yourself that because, because you've got some religiosity on your social resume or you're sitting in a church service right now, that you're close enough to Jesus. I, I can sort of make out what's going on. I can hear some things through the courtyard wall. I've witnessed his speeches, seen some of his miracles, been among his people. Okay, but have you surrendered to his lordship? Have you said, Jesus, I trust you and treasure you more than my convenience, my comfort, my reputation, even, if necessary, my life? Friend, if that's not your heart, and it's none of our hearts perfectly all the time, but if, but if none of that exists in your heart, that desire to live for him, if you've merely been a religious person, a church-going person, but you've never become friends with Jesus, then today's the day that needs to end. And here's the good news. Today's the day it can end. You can step off the treadmill of performing and play acting and going through the motions and run to the one who is saying, come to me. Not come just near me, come into my zip code or come into my neighborhood, but come all the way to me. Come to me, all you who are weary of For example, faking it, weary of keeping up appearances, weary of the burden of sin. If that describes your heart, Jesus says, I will, not I might, I will give you rest. All you've got to be willing to do is come all the way to me. And you've got to be willing to identify with me, even when it makes your life harder. Because if nothing else, he's saying to all of us, Following me is at least two things, very hard and utterly worth it. In verse 55, Mark returns to the the trial. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus, looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they didn't find any. Notice this whole thing is rigged. (laughs) This man needs to die. We we just need a quasi-legal pretext to justify the verdict. Why are they so bloodthirsty at 1 a.m.? I mean, the answer almost certainly is that the Sanhedrin, 
these guys are the ones profiting from the temple industrial complex. It's big business. They're taking a sizable cut from the money changers and the animal sellers. And Jesus had the nerve this past week to crash the party, walking into God's house as if he owned the place. One commentator explains, quote, apparently it's not enough to arrest and flog Jesus. The ruling priests want him dead and disgraced before the crowds. The hearing will serve to convince anyone with misgivings that he's worthy of death and will fix the charge they'll present to the Roman governor. See, Pontius Pilate is no mere rubber stamp. They know they'll need a convincing case to offer him lest he just whip Jesus and let him go. Verse 56, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. See, according to Old Testament law, to convict a person, you needed multiple witnesses, two or more, whose testimonies agreed in exacting detail. Otherwise, they were inadmissible in court. But of course, they're not going to let such technicalities stop their agenda, so they keep trying. Verse 56 is followed by verse 57. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony didn't agree. So these false witnesses who have been trotted out are trying to get their stories to match and they can't do it. But here they actually do come close because this is similar to something Jesus said, though it's still not accurate. What they're referencing is, is an exchange the, the Apostle John records in John chapter 2 between the religious leaders and Jesus. Just listen as I read a couple sentences from John chapter 2. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And, he, and after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture in the words Jesus had spoken. Notice, Jesus never claimed he would destroy the temple. He looked at the religious leaders and said, you will destroy the temple, my body. But I'll be back by the end of the weekend. It was an artful way of claiming, I, I am the temple to end all temples. I am the temple, all the others, the tabernacle in the wilderness, Solomon's temple, even, even the second temple, Herod's temple, all of them were pointing beyond themselves to me. I'm the final meeting place between God and man. But fast forward to this sham trial and what are they claiming? We heard him say, 
I will destroy this temple made with human hands, meaning the physical temple complex in Jerusalem, and in three days build another, which Jesus never said. He did predict, if you recall, uh, he did predict the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, that it would be reduced to rubble. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 13, but you can see what they're doing here. They're conflating two different prophecies that he gave at two different times, and so their stories are garbled. This must have been so frustrating. I mean, if this wasn't such a tragic scene, that there would be some real funny parts. I mean, imagine how frustrating this was for the Sanhedrin. This is their moment. They smell blood and they can't even get their own witnesses to agree. What a pathetic scene. What a desperate scene. Trying to frame and trump up charges against the most loving man to ever walk the earth. And all the while, that man, as the son and Lord of David, is giving ultimate fulfillment to David's own words from a thousand years earlier. Psalm 27, false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. Psalm 35, they gathered in glee. They slandered me without ceasing. They maliciously mocked. They gnashed their teeth at me. Psalm 107, my God, whom I praise, don't remain silent for people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They've spoken against me with lying tongues. The false witnesses who are claiming Jesus said he'd destroy the temple are not committing a minor sin. They are misquoting God. And misquoting God is a devilish thing to do. What's the very first thing the snake said after he slithered into Eden? Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, that's not what he said. The devil is the master misquoter. But he's so crafty that he doesn't just misquote God's words. He will also misapply God's words. Remember when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness and Satan led him to the highest point of the temple and said, if you're really the son of God, Jesus, here's your chance to prove it. If you're really the son of God, throw yourself down from this great height. Do you remember what Satan said next? For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you won't strike your foot against a stone. He quotes Psalm 91. He appeals to the word of God. But Jesus says, oh no, I'm not falling for this. Scripture also says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. The point is this, Satan doesn't always want you to ignore your Bible. We probably weren't expecting to hear that in church today. Satan doesn't always want you to ignore your Bible. Sometimes he's content with just getting you to misapply it. Beloved, beware of the devil's manifold schemes. Whether he slithers into your life misquoting or misapplying the words of the living God. And I, and I realize I'm a broken record here, but this is yet another reason why you need a church and if you belong to a church, why you need to lean into it and lean on your fellow brothers and sisters when you're starting to misquote or misapply the words of life, how else will you know you are? 
than to surround yourself with people who love you enough to lovingly and gently adjust you and correct you and help you when you start to go astray. We're all prone to this, all prone to selective hearing, aren't we? Selective hearing when it comes to the Word of God. Praise Him, therefore, for the provision of a church body. The church is not something a bunch of pastors created for job security. No, the church was God's idea, God's invention, God's design. And so we can praise Him that He's given us a church to help us make sure that we're hearing the full range of his voice. And notice here in the trial, at this point in the trial, no one has yet asked Jesus who he is. I find that curious. I mean, why have, has no one to this point asked Jesus anything about his identity? Well, the answer is because they've already made up their minds. Isn't that representative of so many who reject him today? Maybe it even describes you. Maybe you have twisted, not, not in a you're trying to sort of be uh, super sinister, but, but just your heart has just subtly started to edit the words of Jesus we hear stuff like this often in our culture. Oh, oh, he never addressed homosexuality. And I know for sure he said, judge not lest you be judged. Or maybe you've just made up things about him to keep your distance, to keep that safe following distance. I don't have a problem with Jesus and he wouldn't have a problem with me. I know enough to know that he was all about love and peace and forgiveness and turning the other cheek. Have you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John ever? No, but I'm, I know what the guy was about. That's the mentality of these false witnesses. We've made up our minds about you. You don't need to tell us who you are. We will tell you who you are. Friend, if you're not a believer, here, here's a question I want to press on you today. Are you actually open to changing your mind about Jesus? Are you actually open to changing your mind? Because the people at his trial were not. And it's possible to be far more like these false witnesses than you may care to admit. Justice scorned. Point number two, Jesus condemned. Well, by this point in the trial, the high priest whom John tells us is named Caiaphas. Caiaphas is getting frustrated. <laughs> Verse 60, the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What's this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. That the level of inner confidence and calm required not to answer back is remarkable. But he's fulfilling ancient prophecy, isn't it? We, we heard it in our scripture reading earlier in the service. Isaiah 53, 7, describing the suffering servant. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Fast forward 700 years, and the promised one is on trial, and we read, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Which is why the apostle Peter would later reflect, as we heard in the call to worship, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By not answering, it's like Jesus is saying, sorry, I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to stoop to dignify this circus. He knows the aim of the trial is honestly not to reveal what's right, but to justify what's wrong. And so history's greatest prophet, it's a moment of great irony, history's greatest prophet, the ultimate spokesman and mouthpiece of God, remains silent. And just by the way, even this moment is a mirror that reveals my heart and a mirror that reveals all of our hearts. Just think about it. When it comes to defending ourselves, are we silent? When, it, when it's time to defend me, when I feel like I'm on trial before a jury of my peers, I am pretty vocal. Oh, we better not be misunderstood. We better not be falsely accused. Someone better not misunderstand our tone. We've got to correct the record. We're vocal when it's us on trial. And yet, conveniently, we're often pretty silent when it comes to defending Jesus. Well, Jesus' unwillingness to defend himself just irritates Caiaphas all the more. You can almost see this high priest rising out of his seat, visibly agitated, middle of verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? He just cuts to the chase. This is the decisive question. Jesus, do you really claim to be our long-awaited king? Caiaphas thinks he's got Jesus finally in a corner, but yet this is actually the moment that Jesus has been waiting for. This is the moment he's prepared for, but no one in this jerry-rigged courtroom is prepared for his answer, are they? Verse 62, I am, said Jesus. I am. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, and I've got more to say and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a shocking thing to say when you're in chains. Jesus is the one on trial, but do you see what he's saying? Actually, you are the ones on trial. Today you may be presiding in judgment over me, but the day is coming when I am going to preside in judgment over you. How do we know that's what he's claiming? Because he's evoking language from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In my night, this is Daniel's vision. In my night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. That's the title Jesus uses here, son of man. 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. For centuries after century after century, Israel had been waiting, waiting, waiting for this figure, this triumphant reigning, coming on the clouds, judge of all the earth. By invoking Daniel 7, Jesus is saying, some of you are saying this, some of you are saying that, but one day you are going to see me in clouds of divine glory. So when it talks about the clouds, this is not talking about the clouds of earth, uh, just, just with you know, condensed water. This is talking about the clouds of heaven. It's a picture of the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God. You're going to see me come in the clouds to bring salvation to those who trusted me and justice to those who didn't. You think you are my judges, but actually I am yours. He's not just saying the day is coming when you'll have to face justice in general. That would be a very bold and for any one of us foolish thing to say. But he's not just saying, your day is coming. No, he's saying not one day you're going to have to face justice. He's saying one day you will face me. How crazy is it that even on his own trial, even at his own trial, because the witnesses can't agree, he has to be the one that makes the statement that condemns him. And lest any of us think it's exaggerating or reading theology back into the text to say Jesus is claiming to be God, Just look at the response he gets. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. This was a cultural symbol of intense agony. He's aghast, offended, which just underscores the patheticness of this scene. It's like, oh, now you care about God? Now you're suddenly concerned with his reputation? Of course, this could have just been theatrics a kind of grandstanding display to ensure that he gets his way to to help seal the verdict. Caiaphas then says, why do we need any more witnesses? You all have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? End of verse 64, they all condemned him. Unanimous. They all condemned him as worthy of death. Here's the thing. Charging Jesus Christ with blasphemy is actually correct if he's not who he said he was. Sometimes you will meet people, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or certain theological liberals, for example, who will say that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. But I say this with respect. I'm genuinely not not trying to score a point, not be snarky. I don't like it when preachers do that just for the sake of effect. I say this with respect. If that is your perspective, if if, if you hold that view that Jesus never claimed to be God, then either you've never actually read the Gospels or you struggle with basic reading comprehension. All you have to do is look at the context of his most outrageous claims and simply watch how people responded to know what he meant. (laughs) 
How did the original audience interpret his words? We've seen this before. For example, Mark chapter 2, when Jesus heals a paralyzed guy and dares to say out of the blue, oh, yeah, and your sins are forgiven. How did that go over? What was that interpreted as? What did people hear Jesus claiming? It wasn't lost on the religious experts. They immediately say, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? To which Jesus says, in effect, exactly. It was statements like that and like this in Mark chapter 14 that got Jesus executed. Friend, if you approve of Jesus, respect Jesus, think he was a good moral teacher, but have not given him control of your life, still not given him control of your life, then I would submit to you that you still don't understand who he really is. He's not just a God-like man. He's the God-man. The creature become a creator. The invisible become visible. The eternal one invading time. The immortal one taking on flesh to die. There's the Jesus of popular imagination, the Jesus of political convenience, the Jesus of personal preference, but the Jesus of history, the real one, the one who will judge the world before whom you will one day stand is none other than God's perfect man and man's perfect God. To put it bluntly, either Caiaphas is correct, either the high priest Caiaphas is correct and Jesus is a deluded blasphemer, or Jesus is correct and Caiaphas is a blasphemer. And friend, once you've settled in your heart that you're going to pull a Caiaphas and, and these witnesses and act like these, the, the Sanhedrin, that, that you are going to reject Jesus, it goes downhill fast. Verse 65, then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Prophesy, prophesy. The scoffer spoke better than they knew because he already had. He had called their own shot. In chapter 10, he had said, I'm going to be mocked and spit on, flogged and killed. Verse 65, it's easy to treat, just kind of think that the scene is over and, and rush past it. But it's a sinister snapshot of all our hearts apart from Christ. The spitting, the blindfolding, the striking, the mocking, the irrational, seething hatred for this one man. Maybe you've experienced that before with a neighbor or a friend or perhaps even in your own heart. There is a reaction to Jesus that is very different than a reaction to any other major religious figure throughout history. Something about this man that provokes resistance, even rage, And that echoes and testifies to the fact that, friends, deep down in our hearts, we all know who He is. We at least know who God is and that we are responsible and accountable to the one who created us. And so we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I heard someone say this week, imagine if you had perfect parents. Just imagine that your parents had never once failed you, never once 
committed a mistake regarding you, never once uh, hurt you or sinned against you. They were only kind, only generous, only good to you all the time. Now imagine that you start lying to them, stealing from them, slandering them to others, maybe even physically attacking them, or saying, I I want nothing to do with you. I don't want to be in your presence. I'm bored around you. You're getting a little taste of what sin is. Sin is not rational. And the more we give ourselves to it, the more hardened, like these people in verse 65, the more hardened and irrational we will become. As Spurgeon once said, does the scoffer when he mocks high heaven think he insults God? He thinks so, but his insult dies long ere it reaches halfway to the stars. The God-man will not be mocked. He may look weak and helpless in the house of Caiaphas with his hands tied behind his back, but it's actually his refusal to speak back, to strike back, that is the sign of his strength, and not just his strength, also his love. Friend, this is what the gospel is all about. We in our sin have tried to substitute ourselves for God. We've tried to sit in judgment over him, assuming we know better, we know how to live. We don't need you unless we're in a bind. But this passage is like an enacted parable of salvation because the rightful judge was willing to be condemned in the place of sinners like us who have arrogated to ourselves the right to condemn him. That's the gospel, that in response to our trying to substitute ourselves for God, if you don't remember anything else I say this morning, remember this. In response to us trying to substitute ourselves for the holy God, he came and substituted himself for us. And because he took our sentence, Because he took our sin, it's not just Sanhedrin justice, but God's justice against sin. Because he paid the penalty in full. It is finished and rose victorious and vindicated on the third day. Anyone here this morning can experience the miracle, the miracle of having all of your sins transferred to him and all of his righteousness credited to you for free, simply by turning from your rebellion and surrendering to him as king. Just think, as as we conclude, what food, I know it's a weird question to ask as I conclude, but what food was in the stomachs of the Sanhedrin when all of this is going on? Meat from a Passover lamb. They had all feasted that evening on a Passover lamb. It's the most sacred night of the year. They're up at 1 a.m., on this sacred night, not worshiping, not praying, but conspiring to slaughter the Lamb of God himself. Christianity became the weirdest religion the world had ever seen. 
Those of you who have done missions uh, overseas, perhaps in Muslim context, you, you, you know something about this, how people view it. it. It's a very strange religion when you think about it. No temples, no sacrifices, no priests, because the final one has come. The person who came face to face with the high priest that Thursday night was Caiaphas. And this high priest has come not to, that in his first coming, he came not to bring judgment, but to bear it. But friends, the day is coming as he tells us in this passage, quoting Daniel 7, the day is coming when he will come again, not to bear judgment, but to bring it. And yet you don't need to fear that day, believer. You don't need to fear the day of judgment. Because if you're safe in Christ and he's interceding for you, do you know what that means? It means your judgment day has already happened. It's history. It's over. Your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. And therefore, right now, before the throne of God above, you have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for thee. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we are tempted, like Peter, to keep a safe following distance from you, lest your reputation and your words and your truth make us uncomfortable. But Lord, we praise you that your grace is so much greater than our sin. We praise you that you are the high priest that we all need and that if we're trusting in you, that we have no fear for when you return to make all things new, to rescue your people and to bring justice to the world. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has yet to surrender to your kingship, if there's anyone this morning who has yet to come to you in humble repentance and faith, we pray that would happen before they walk out of these doors. In Jesus' name, amen.